Well, good morning, everybody. Good to be with you on this first Sunday of Lent, this beginning of this season of preparation, preparing our hearts and minds for what it means for Jesus to suffer and die and go to the cross, and then, of course, be raised from the dead on Easter Sunday morning. And so I hope that as you have begun a holy Lent, that this season uh, will uh, guide your hearts and encourage your souls in this relationship we all seek with Jesus Christ. I don't know about you, but I often think about names, right? My name, your name, our names together, right? Because names are fascinating things, aren't they? Um, They all have a meaning. They all have a purpose. Uh, We get named as infancy. You may not know this about me, but I had several weeks of life by the name of Baby Boy Humbert. I was the fourth of four kids, and my parents couldn't think of a, a fourth name. And so I just reflected back uh, just about a month ago, and I found my original birth certificate and the addendum to the certificate that said I got a name finally at about age four weeks. So, and all of our uh, kids were named after biblical names. Uh, My name is Daniel. Uh, Thank you very much. And my name means God is my judge. And so I get to live with that all of my life. God is my judge. And and, uh, you know, I don't do that very well, and I don't respond very well to that, but that's the purpose of my name, just like your name has a purpose. You may not even know it, but everybody's name has a purpose. Whether it's a simple name like Bill or Tom or Susie or Sally or, or a hard name or difficult name, a made-up name, there's purpose and value to your name. Your parents put all kinds of thought and energy and effort into that, and, and I hope you, if you have children, did the very same thing that you, you thought through about why you named your child what you named them. Names are important, and they have value to each one of us and purpose, and I hope that you know your purpose, and I hope that you claim that in your everyday life. Did you know that God has a name? You know, we tend to call God God. Every once in a while, of course, we say God the Father. We say Father, right? But, but we tend not to think of God's name, but God has a name. And in the Hebrew, the original language of the Old Testament, the, there were just four letters that made up God's name. It was Y-H-W-H, and that's pronounced Yahweh. In the biblical Hebrew, there are no vowels, so there are no A-O-I-O-N-U's, right? There's just, there's just consonants. And God's name, Yahweh, has a fascinating intent and purpose behind it. We're told by scholars that it literally must conceive itself from the very concept of what you and I refer to as a be verb. Therefore, Yahweh means to be. It means I am. And I don't know if you reflected all about your uh, middle school English. Do you remember when we learned be verbs? I still have PTSD from that because I don't remember that stuff. It was horrible, right? is and am and was and were and be, and I, I don't know. Those are just words to me. I don't know what they are, but they're be verbs, they, that, that, that they mean purposely that you're in the present tense or that you're in the past tense, and they indicate action. God's name indicates action. It indicates being. And it's fascinating because as we began to write down the biblical stories, we began to realize that, golly, we might actually take God's name in vain if we spoke God's name and certainly if we wrote God's name, the fourth commandment, right? And so early on as the scriptures were written, the, the scholars began to say, let's not, let's not write Yahweh. That's why in your English translations you will rarely ever see Yahweh as a name for God. But what you will see when you read in the Old Testament, you'll see a word that's just four letters long, and Yahweh is translated into L O 
L-O-R-D, Lord. And in particular, it's in all capitalization so that you know it's distinguishable, that it's distinctive, that it's unique. And that Lord is a way for us to speak God's name without speaking God's name. And it's a way for us to recognize that in that name, we find life and wholeness and fullness from the very beginning of time. In fact, we're told in Genesis chapter 4, after Cain killed Abel, and then Cain went on to have a few kids, and, and Adam and Eve had a third kid named Seth, we're told at the very end of Genesis chapter 4, verse 26, that it was at this time that people first began to worship the Lord by name. In the Hebrew, that literally is Yahweh, to be, right? In the Hebrew, that literally is God's name, and they began to identify God's name and call out God's name and worship God by name because names are purposeful and valuable and have great um, concern for all of us. As time progressed and people of other faith traditions came to be known, Moses was going to go back to the Egyptians, right, to call those people out, right? His people had been in slavery, and he'd left, and now God was calling Moses to go back to Egypt and set his people free, set the Israelites free. And Moses, in all of his great wisdom and trying to deny and run from the call of God, said to God at one point in Exodus chapter 3, well, God, what's What's your name? I mean, they're going to want to know your name because if they know your name, they'll know more about you and what you can do and what your purpose is and all of that. So tell me, God, what is your name? In Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, God just speaks what his name is. God says to Moses, I am who I am. Tell the people of Israel, I am sent me to you. Well, that's kind of interesting, isn't it? God's name, Yahweh, then literally means I am because, of course, I am is a be verb. It's to be. God is who God is. God will be who God will be. God's very nature is that God can't be contained, can't be constrained, can't be regulated, can't be restrained. God is who God is. God will be who God will be. And ultimately, I am is who God is. And this becomes good news for all of us because God is the one who creates all, sets all in motion, and helps bring to be all that is so that we can genuinely say, all that is, is from I am. How's that feel? That's pretty cool, isn't it? I mean, when we think about it, that means that God is in all, through all, beyond all, above all, below all, a part of all, because God is, I am. What's even more fascinating, I'm just going to geek out on you a little bit here. In the Hebrew language, they do not use a be verb in the present tense. There is no present tense be verb. So you don't say, I am in the, in the Hebrew. You, you likewise don't say, that is what I do. You say, I do. Because God is, I am. And there's a past tense be verb and there's a future tense be verb in the Hebrew, but there is no present tense because God is in all things. The great I am. That's who God is. And that's what God's name means. Well, we tootle along through Scripture and through the history of salvation of the Hebrews, and we get to Jesus' birth and life, and we get to the Gospels, 
And the Gospels tell a powerful story of Jesus' life and death and resurrection. And John's Gospel, the last Gospel in particular, tells a powerful story of Jesus. And Jesus has the gall in the Gospel of John to call himself, I am. Can you believe the gall? Jesus, who is the Son of God, the Savior of the world, is also claiming to be God. And in the Greek, I am, when Jesus claims it, is this way. It goes this way, ego eimi. That's not lego my ego, that's ego eimi. I am. No less than 26 times in the Gospel of John does Jesus say, I am. And he begins to articulate in a very clear and specific way over and over again. He is not only the Savior, but he is God. And because of that, he is one with God. And because of that, he can do all that God can do. And because of that, he is a part of the great creation. Let's just look at a couple of them. In in John chapter 8 alone, Jesus refers to himself as I am four different times. But here's a couple of them here. John chapter 8, verse 24. This is why I told you that I would die, uh, that you would die in your sins. If you don't believe that I am, you will die in your sin. I am God, he was saying. Verse 28. So Jesus said to them, when the Son of Man is lifted up, then you will know that I am. Most English translations add another word there, a pronoun, he, that you know that I am he. But in the Greek, it literally just says ego eimi. Verse 58, this is a great one. I assure you, Jesus replied, before Abraham was, I am. And we have a relatively difficult time relating that even to God, that God was in the beginning before all things. But now Jesus is saying, I was in the beginning, and I was before Abraham, and I was a part of all of that, right? And so Jesus is acknowledging that he is with God from the very beginning. And this is why throughout the season of Lent, as Jesus identifies himself as the great I am multiple times, we want to relate to that throughout these next seven weeks. Jesus will claim what many of us know, right? I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the gate. I am the good shepherd. I am the way and the truth and the life. I am the true vine. And I am, of course, the resurrection and the life. And a part of what Jesus is beginning to say to those who will hear him and those who want to follow him is that he becomes the solution to many of our human conditions. I am the bread of life because we are spiritually hungry. I am the light of the world because I often live in darkness. I am the gate because sometimes I can't find my way. I am the good shepherd because I need a guide in my isolation. I am the way and the truth and the life because I'm afraid and I don't always know a way forward. I am the true vine because I often feel isolated in my life and I don't always know how to find connection. And I am the resurrection and the life because we face death, both physically and spiritually. And we need a healer and a whole bringer. And so Jesus is that I am. Today I want to focus on what we will identify as the first of those. It's technically the second in terms of the ordering, but Jesus says in John chapter 8, after a long discourse, 
He says this, beginning in verse 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And Jesus speaks forward this powerful truth by acknowledging that he has something to offer the world, and he'll call it light. But light is a powerful gift, isn't it? Light solves a lot of problems in our lives, doesn't it? Just lose electricity for a little while, and, and we remember that, right? We recall that. You would be sitting in the dark today if there weren't light in this room, if there weren't light to project up on that screen, if there weren't light sitting in these candles. We would all be in the dark, both physically and perhaps even spiritually. But Jesus brings light because that is who he is. And I reflect in my own life how much I need light. I, I know this more and more the older I get, right? I mean, I can't see as it is. I have glasses, but I've realized over the years that sometimes when I'm reading and I can't see what's before me, I realize, oh, I, I need more light, right? And I turn on a light, and I'm like, oh, I can now see the words on the page. Has anybody ever had that happen to them? It's why late at night, if I can't quite sleep and Kay's sleeping contently and I need to read or do something to keep my mind occupied to get me back to sleep, right, I will take out my trusty handy-dandy little phone and my little flashlight and I'll hold it close to the book and I'll read like this, right? You just try to see because I can't see otherwise, right? Light is important. And light guides the way, helps us to see where we're going. Light becomes critical to forward thinking, to movement, to achieving. It's why in the book of Exodus, as the Israelites are trying to find their way out of the wilderness into the promised land, God went before them as a light. Listen to Exodus chapter 13, verse 21. The Lord showed them the way. During the day, God went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud. And during the night, God was in a pillar of fire to give them light. And God shone the way. And God provided guidance for them. So part of what Jesus is saying to us when he says, I am the light of the world, is he's highlighting the fact that he is our spiritual guide, that he's providing a pathway forward, that he's offering a way for us to see through the darkness of the world. And my hunch is every last one of us knows dark times, knows darkness in our lives, recognizes that we can't always see through the darkness. And we need the light of life. That's why Jesus brought it. But we also know that light not only provides a path, but light is literally life. You know, when scientists are looking for life in the other parts of the universe, they look for two very clear things. One is water, and the second is light. And if there is water and if there is light, by golly, we might be able to hang out there sometime and we might find a way to see and encounter life there. In fact, light is so important to life, it's the very first thing created by God. You remember Genesis chapter 1? There was, uh, in the beginning when God began to create, there was darkness and the earth was a formless void. And all we find ourselves in is at verse 3, God said... Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. And ever since then, light has always overcome the darkness because light is life. 
And this is the second thing that Jesus is bringing to us, is abundant life. John knew this, and John wanted to record this for us, so he speaks Jesus' words to us in the very beginning of his gospel. He would say in John chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, in him, meaning Jesus, in him is life, and the life was the light of all people. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never overtake it. Jesus knew this. John wanted us to know it, so he recorded it. And so what we begin to understand from Jesus as the I am, the light of the world, is that he's offering us a pathway for spiritual reality and spiritual truth, and he's offering us an abundant life that is beyond compare in anything else we can find in vocation or even family or community. All of those things are valuable and important, but light from Christ offers us life beyond compare. And so how do we get here? I mean, when we look at John chapter 8, um, it, it is a bit awkward where Jesus starts here in verse 12. He just says, then Jesus spoke again, and he said, I am the light of the world. Well, when you look at John chapter 8, you might recall that the very first 11 verses is that very powerful story of the woman caught in adultery. And people have got their arms half cocked to stone her to death to abide by the law, right? And, and they tell that powerful story that Jesus saves her life both physically and spiritually and calls her to repent and to, to, to go on not sinning in the same fashion. And that's a magnificent story. But where Jesus starts in, in chapter 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world, seems to, it seems to have no real reference to that story except for this. That story becomes kind of a, a vivification or an enlightening of what has actually gone on in John chapter 7. In John chapter 7, Jesus has come to Jerusalem, and he's teaching as he always does, but he has come this time to Jerusalem to celebrate what's known as the Feast of the Tabernacles. Now, for Christians, we don't really pay close attention to that. We know a little bit about Hanukkah. We know a little bit about Rosh Hashanah, right, and Yom Kippur. But when we talk about the Feast of Tabernacles, we're kind of like, well, I, I don't know. But Jesus was there to celebrate the feast, and the feast is a very powerful feast that celebrates the way in which God tabernacled with the people of God as they traversed from the wilderness toward the promised land. It celebrates the 40-year victory, if you will, from making it out of that slavery and bondage in the wilderness to, to the wholeness of the promised land. And tabernacles... They would literally build booths. So sometimes it's called the Feast of Booths. Sometimes it's called the Feast of Sukkot, which is Hebrew for booth. And it literally just kind of highlights that when we make these booths, we're celebrating that God walked with us, God went before us, and God helped us achieve freedom in the promised land, right? It's a great celebration. It's always in the fall, comes after Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, and it's a great way for the Israelites to celebrate their victory, right? Jesus is in Jerusalem celebrating this. And in John chapter 7, he has great conversation with folks. I want to encourage you, go home today, read John chapter 7, and read it through, through uh, eight, John chapter 8, verse 12. And notice that you could follow along, if you would, uh, from the very last verse of John chapter 7 to John chapter 8, verse 12. And it would follow almost like an uninterrupted story except for the one that vivifies it, the woman caught in adultery, where people begin to see the light of the law. But here's what's fascinating. Feast of Tabernacles, back in chapter 7. It's a celebration that uses light. 
as a way to celebrate victory. In fact, on the great day of the feast, it's actually day eight. It's a seven-day feast, but on day eight, they light four candles or four lamps, and those, those lamps are what celebrate the light of God. In fact, it reflects the fact that, that God is sort of over the four corners of the globe, that God is over all and in all, you know, kind of like Yahweh, God is, I am. And that celebration, it says in John chapter 7, verse 37, that it was the great day, that on the great day they were celebrating and they must have lit these four lamps. And therefore they're understanding that there's some light going on and there's something to celebrate in all of that. Well, those four lamps... They also represent two characteristics of God. One is God's glory. That is to say God's sort of eminence and God's uh, shining forth and God's uh, power and God's capacity, right? God's glory. Part of those, those lamps celebrate that. And a part of them celebrate for the Hebrews the great light that will be coming into the world. They would call a Messiah whom they still wait upon but whom we know to be Jesus, the great light of the world. So these lamps in the tabernacle feast are celebrating something that is yet to come for them, but whom Jesus acknowledges he is. Listen to a description of the glory part of God. You have to go all the way back to 1 Kings chapter 8, not a commonly read passage, but it's a fascinating passage, and it says this, when the priests left the holy place, a cloud filled the temple of the Lord, and the priests could not continue their work because the temple was filled with the glory of the Lord. The temple where they would worship was so filled with the power of God, with the glory of God, with the remnants of God that it was almost as if they, they couldn't fit in. They couldn't, they couldn't do their work. They couldn't get into the connection. And so part of what they're celebrating through the lamps in the Feast of Tabernacles is that God's glory is eminent, that it's just fully pervasive, that it is in all and through all and above all and below all and with us. God's glory is a gift. And they're celebrating that on the great day of the Feast of Tabernacles. But they're also celebrating the great light that is to come. And the prophet Isaiah would tell us about this. And we often read this passage from Isaiah during the season of Advent, preparing for Jesus' coming. You may know this passage, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2. It literally just says, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a land of deep darkness, on them light will shine. We know that to be Jesus. I am the light of the world. And so as Jesus is with his friends in Jerusalem celebrating the great day of the Feast of Tabernacles, where they know light is representing the glory of God and the great light that is to come, we find in chapter 8, verse 12, he just puts it all out there. I am the light of the world. I am bringing you this glory. I am bringing you this great light. I am God with you. And you need now to know that even though you may see darkness and feel darkness and be consumed by darkness, that I am light. And I want you to be compelled to know 
that I am fulfilling all of God's prophecy, that I am fulfilling all that God intended, and this light will give a path to your journey and abundance to your life like nothing else. And just to make sure we really get this, gospel writer of John who also writes the Revelation at the very end of the Bible, he says it this way in the very last chapter, Revelation 22, and there will be no more night. They need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord Yahweh will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. How cool is that? From the very beginning of Genesis to the very end of Revelation, God is I am. From the very beginning of Revel Genesis to the very end of Revelation, Jesus is I am the light of the world. And he offers us a pathway forward through our darkness. And he offers us life that is beyond any kind of compare in all of the world. What a gift this is. What a glorious opportunity it is to know that Jesus is one with God and that he provides for us a powerful path and a wonderful way forward because he really is the light of the world. I pray this day and throughout the season of Lent and even beyond that you will know him as your light, that you will discover the way he can guide your path, that you will recognize that he and he alone can bring you life beyond anything else. For his light is life, and in him is life. Thanks be to God for that powerful gift. Will you pray with me? Holy and loving God, thank you for your son Jesus, who is one with you, who claims your name, and who offers your light. Help us, God, to continue to abide within that light, to share that light with the world, and to shine its abundance on any place that has darkness. God, may we truly shine your light and be your light each and every day. This is our prayer, and we pray it in the name of the one Jesus, who really is the light of the world. Amen.